Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org, where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for those speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle Podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Lucy. Hi, everyone. Good evening. I'm Lucy, and I'm a compulsive overeater. I'm just going to take a drink of water. This is the silence if you're listening. Um, First of all, I want to welcome the newcomers. Ahuva is absolutely right. You are the most important person and by far the most courageous person in the room right now. Um, It was very difficult for me to come in. It was very difficult for me to admit I was a compulsive overeater, and I certainly was better than everybody else in the room, for sure. Um, I could tell because of my shoes. Um, uh, Patrick, thank you so much. It's wonderful to have you here from from Arlington, Virginia. And, of course, Ahuva, getting a year is is such a really um, magical, magical, magical thing, and and, uh, and that's really great. So one thing I want to say is, okay, I just want to start at the beginning and kind of get the details out of the way. I first came into this program in 1986. I was going to see a life coach, and he was like, you know, I think you have an eating issue. And, you know, you're going to go with my wife down to Hill Street at 7.30 in the morning. And so, you know, I went with his wife to Hill Street at 7.30 in the morning. I was like, I hate these people, and they make me want to eat pizza, and I'm never coming back. And then I, I think I went off and binged on breakfast or something. And that was 1986, and I came back 20 years later. So it was, it was quite a big span. And um, in 2006, I came in because a friend of mine who's in OA, and she actually has come back right now and, and, and has, like, nine months of abstinence, which is really great. Um, she directed me to a therapist who, who um, focused on food as an issue. And she was fabulous because she kept saying, go to OA, go to OA. But she never insisted that I go. And I saw her for like two years. And I kept thinking that I would go to OA when it was convenient, kind of like it was a drive-through open 24-7. And I would just go and stop by and, you know, I'd get a little recovery and leave and pick up a Diet Coke or something. And So that didn't happen. And then one day... Um, I was sitting on the beach, and I had binged and drank the night before, and I just couldn't stand my, I felt like my stomach was hanging over my legs, and that's the the day I came into OA in 2006. I became abstinent two years later. It took me a while to get abstinent, um, January 28, 2008. Um, So I have about 11 and a half years of abstinence. Um, I met my sponsor around January 20. I've had the same sponsor my entire time. Um, I'm not recommending that or not recommending it. It just happens to be my story, and I'm, and I'm very happy with my, my story, which is good because it's mine. Um, and let's see what are the other details. Okay, I've weighed as low. At this height, I'm about 5'7", 5'6 and a half, 5'7". I've, I've weighed as low as 125. I've weighed 167. Um, I've, I've weighed 167 in this program, and I've alternated between about a size 6 and 16 in my life, and I'm around a 10 right now. And this is the most... Um, I don't know the right word, the most peaceful I've ever felt with my body. I do not worry if people have a pool party and I have to go to it. I mean, maybe if I was going with Italian models, maybe. But basically, I go to pool parties. I go wherever I want. I don't worry about what I look like. I don't think a lot about what I look like. I don't engage in certain behaviors. I do not look in the mirror and check out my stomach. 
And if I do, I go, no, I'm checking out my stomach. Um, I look at pictures, and if I do it and I think I'm fat, I don't look at the pictures anymore because I've had about 50 years of that. Um, so to start with my fabulously interesting childhood, um, I grew up with very wealthy parents. They were highly educated, very good-looking, uh, very good at sports. Um, they were sort of all the things that you'd want to be in Town & Country magazine. They were also politically very correct, oddly. And um, so they decided when I was six that, that they were going to go do humanitarian work in Southeast Asia. So I went from being kind of aristocratic and kind of... I went to public school because that was kind of the politically correct thing to do, but kind of having this big house to going to a place where there was... Um, six-foot snakes in the gutters where I was um, covered with ticks, where my room was regularly robbed, where I had a bathroom, which was more than most people had, but the bathroom was a, um, a squat toilet. Um, that was actually more than the neighbors had. I was the only uh, white child in my grade. Uh, there's about 200 people in my grade. There was a few other white kids in the school that I would see from time to time. Um, but I wasn't around any. Uh, I was completely alone most of the time. I learned to read very well and very quickly. I sent my mother to the library every day, and that was my big thing. There was no milk, so there was no dairy. Um, so the biggest thrill was going to get these evaporated milk products, which were, and then they had the cherries on top, kind of like they have in fruitcake, like the disgusting brandy cherries and green pineapple and gross stuff, but that was like our biggest treat. That was like a really big thing. There was no television. I don't remember any radio. There was one telephone. And, and um, so I learned very quickly to entertain myself. And I heard the other day in another meeting um, something really interesting, and I'm sure it's really obvious, but to me it was like, oh my God, that's so amazing. That the kind of the attributes that we use to cope with our childhood later become defects of character. So I really used fantasy. Like, I had fantasy down, and I read these English books, and they lived in castles, and they had incredible teas, and Devonshire cream, and scones, and cakes, and, you know, there were fairies, and elves, and leprechauns, and I just lived there, because it was a heck of a lot better than living where I was. Um, you know, I was very ill, and for whatever reason, bless you, Mom, I adore you, but you weren't great on this issue, um, my mother would not take me to the doctor. So finally what I did was I would refuse to go to school and say, you have to take me to the doctor. Well, it turned out I had rheumatic fever, which is life-threatening. Um, and that, stuff like that, I don't need to go into the gory details, but stuff like that would happen a lot. So I learned to live in fantasy, and part of the fantasy was the food. And then the other thing I lived in was ballet, and it was like that, that chorus line song from that, everything was beautiful, the ballet, and I was beautiful. And, and my parents thought it was very, very important to be smart, but they did not think it was important to be beautiful. That was sort of unattractive. If you said that about yourself, you say, oh, I really think I'm pretty. I think I said that once. You're like, don't ever say that again. And it was like a lot of kind of extreme political correctness. Um, so, and I said to my mom once, why am I so scared to sleep in my room? Like, why don't I, why have I slept with my brother for three years? She said, well, I wouldn't sleep in your room. I said, why? She said, well, people would, like, rob you and drug you and take the screens out. I was like, wow, that sounds kind of bad. Yeah, so, anyways, <laughs> but that was my childhood. And, you know, that we traveled all over the world. I'd been around the world before I was nine. And, um, you know, I 
walked over Taliban territory in Pakistan into Afghanistan. I took a bus up the Khyber Pass. I've been left alone in rooms in Agra, India to entertain myself. I have, you know, had meals of warm orange juice and orangeade and rice because there's nothing else to eat in Burma in 1964. I've been left alone with dysentery in hotel rooms in Afghanistan. So it was, a, it was a little bit different. And then I got back to the United States and I didn't fit in. And part of me felt horrible because I didn't know how to dress and I didn't know how to be a normal kid. And part of me like, what is wrong with your parents? You know, all they did was take you to Carmel. Like, my parents, I was, I was in Tunisia. Like, what's your problem? You know, and, um, and also because of the amount I read, because there's nothing else to do, I was about three grades ahead of everybody else. So I developed both, both this intense superiority and inferiority complex. And I was still dancing a lot. And at that time, around 10, I started to go and uh, gain weight. And around 10, I began a diet that never ended. I was, as a child, I was, as a teenager, I was never not grounded. I was never not on a diet. Like, never. It was never okay to be the weight that I was. And it got worse in puberty. Because then I had to attract the opposite sex. And so then I resorted to some really kind of strange uh, sartorial effects. You know, I would wear my best friend's father's bathrobe so nobody could see my butt. Or I would wear, like, girdle upon girdle. You know, that this was not 1950. I was wearing, like, three ultra spanks, like three girdles. Or I'd wear these kind of long dresses and flowing robes, but a swimsuit on top because I was kind of okay on top. So I had like seven different swimsuits and the same skirt. And there was all these kind of strange ways that I was covering up my self-hatred. And what, what I really developed was this absolutely intense self-hatred, this feeling that I did not belong here, that I did not belong and I'd gone to 14 different schools, so it was, you know, probably kind of normal. But um, and a feeling that I wasn't sure if my parents really liked me or not because they were so into each other, and they were so beautiful and talented and wonderful. I was kind of like, well, hello, but you know, so I wasn't really sure if I was that important. Um, and then I began this very serious ballet career, and and they were like, okay, if you can be thinner. And I, it was with the San Francisco Ballet Company. If you can be thinner, we'll put you on stage. So because I was considered very talented at the time, I was in, like, a very fast-moving group. And what happened is my best friend became Clara, of course, in the Nutcracker at the Opera House. And they said, Lucy, we can't fit you in a costume, so you're not going to be in the show. And all I could think of is, I could be a rat. I mean, it's not that, you know, <laughs> you know, it's not... It's a pretty big costume. I don't see a lot of thin rats out there, so... So I was devastated, and I learned, you know, that if you wanted to be, and my mother would, you know, wanted to be successful, you needed to be thin, and and, and that was kind of my mom's message. Like, she used to say, well, you know, you fall down a lot because you're fat. And, and it was an issue for my mother her whole life. My mom was probably one of us, and my grandmother was one of us. They were obsessed with food. And I, my mother was a great cook, my grandmother's a great cook, and there was a lot of conversation about cooking and, you know, Oh, we had the canals at the blah blah blah. Those the the cod cakes, and were they cooked in copper or tin or like I don't know. So um, so it's a lot of conversation about it, and I remember standing in my parents' kitchen that still exists, opening the bread drawer, and it was one of those old-fashioned bread drawers that kind of had the um, metal top on it, and opening it up, and I would just stand there eating those pink and white animal crackers with sprinkles. 
until I got the perfect one. Because it was going to be, if I got the perfect one, then it would be like Oxycontin, right? I would like go at one with the world. It would be like an opiate. I'd be like, and I would just be, and then I would start like doing different things with bread. Like there'd be bread and butter, and then bread with the cream cheese, and then the butter and the cream cheese, and then the jam, and then it'd be mixed up, and then some would be toasted, and some, it would just go on and on like this. So ultimately, I went to, to religious boarding school, and um, unfortunately, and I, I'm very careful when I say this because there are many people that are in my religion that are um, that felt very loved by God. I was not one of those people. I was not. I was named after a saint, and I was not a saint. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I'm not perfect, so I might as well go f you and do whatever I wanted because it was not happening. And and I felt this constant guilt that I wasn't perfect. So my relationship with God was like a really horrible father. Like, please don't beat me. If I'm really good, don't beat me. And I'll, I'll pray to you to give me like the Santa Claus thing. But please don't beat me because I'm really this horrible, horrible person. And I was filled with self-loathing, all based on could I be thin. Because I knew that the equation was this. If you were a good person, you were thin. So I was going to do whatever it took. I just And every day was a new day. I hope, I hope, I hope. So I go to this girls' boarding school, and eating a lot was an absolute Olympic sport because there wasn't anything else to do. So it was an Olympic sport, and um, my girlfriend Jane and I would have com- competitions at snack time. Who could eat more glazed donuts? She won. She had eight. I had six. And... In, and that's the way it would go. And our big entertainment, we'd go to golf club or Denny's, and we'd have, you know, things I can't imagine. I mean, like, not just a hamburger, but it was like a chili cheeseburger with French fries and then onion. I mean, it was just like mounds of, of food. And then I began, you know, this serious dieting. And by that time, I was giving up being a dancer because I was tired of telling my, everybody telling me I was too fat and... So I became a performer, and, and once again, I got, you know, the same old thing. You know, we love you, you're a little bit, and here's the quotation marks, hippie, a little bit, not like bohemian, like rear end, a little bit hippie. You'd be so pretty if you were thinner. You know, you have such an interesting face. So I could see that what was keeping me from God fulfillment was my weight. That was, that was what it was. It was pretty obvious, you know. So, and I don't have any idea how I got this idea, whether it was society or a fashion magazine or my mom. And I don't blame anybody. It's just what I had. And I started the diets. And first there was the grapefruit diet. You ate grapefruit because that was supposed to, the acid was supposed to churn it up. And then there was the metropel diet, which is the first of the liquid fasting. So, of course, I just used that as a snack and went on eating. And then there was these little candies called AIDS, bad name, called AIDS. And then you ate those. And, of course, I just ate a box of those, and that was the end of that. And then I had a babysitter who said she lost her weight, and I thought she was really hot because she just ate two pieces of cheesecake a day. So then I tried that. But, of course, what happens then, and when you start restricting, you start binging. 
And then I would go to all these strange exercise programs. Like back in the day, they didn't have gyms, but they had these little um, belty things that jiggled your fat. So I would just sit there jiggling, getting my fat jiggled, and, and it would work. And the only reason why it worked is the only diet that ever worked for me is the male obsession diet. And I had an obsession that summer with a very hot guy who unfortunately had a girlfriend, but he, had a very, he was very hot. And so I wasn't eating because I felt sick all the time around him. And so that always worked. The problem was they would either leave or I would get comfortable and start eating again. So it wasn't a really long-term diet. The, the other one that worked for me very well was the cigarettes and drinking diet. And that worked really well, too. And I thought it was very sort of glamorous, like I was Greta Gar- Garbo or something, or Myrna Loy, like I was drinking wine and smoking cigarettes. And probably I just had bad breath, but I thought it was really super glamorous. And, <laughs> Anyway, and, and then, you know, just became all the other diets and the $6,000 to the fancy trainer at Gold's Gym who took pictures of me half naked as I was crying, you know, the, and then the guy with the calipers saying, you have 33% body fat, and then he told me to go, you know, he was some big Hollywood action star, nutritionist, and so he said, just eat protein and vegetables. Well, that gives me acute GI distress, so I couldn't leave the bathroom, and then, of course, I lied to him and ate whatever I wanted. Because sponsors asked me, "Do you want to? Should I go to nutrition?" I was like, "Sure, I never paid. I never paid any attention to them. Go right ahead." I so I'm sure they're really valuable. I just wouldn't know. But anyway, so um, so I did all that kind of all that kind of stuff. And what really dogged me was this profound feeling that I just was unworthy. I was just, and I went to therapists. Somebody said the other day at a meeting I was at, "I wish I had the money back." And part of me thought, oh, that's so shallow. And I was like, oh, no, I want that money. I mean, I wish, in a way, I had the money back. But all of those things got to where I am today. And I used to really regret that I had two years of relapse. Absolutely not. It took me that two years to get here. So what happened was, um, as I said to you before, I I had uh, kind of my Eskimo was this food therapist, who I believe still has about 40-plus years of of abstinence, and I came in, and I, was, and I was sitting in the back of the room, and I would like, oh, these people don't have a job. It's 1 o'clock. You know, they obviously don't work. I'm really busy. You're not. And I would sit in the back of the room, and then I would leave early. And then finally I thought, well, I'll get a sponsor. And so I got a sponsor, and she was like, how many meetings do you come to a week? I'm like, two or three. She's like, good, good, good. And I went to Paris, and it never occurred to me to call her from Paris ever or go to a meeting. This was something I did as a hobby. This was something I did on the side. And I was a full-time eater man. And I had, I had my menu lined up in Paris. And I had my friend. He was going to get these certain kind of oysters at the market. And, I mean, I was on a mission. You know, like other people buy their museum tickets in advance. I was like, I'm getting these oysters. I'm going to these restaurants. I mean, I was, I planned it out. And I got back to my hotel, and of course it wasn't enough. So I opened my refrigerator, I took out a half bottle of champagne, a bottle of biscuits, and I started a bottle of bag of biscuits, and I started to binge. And I had at that time a couple months of abstinence. And the next morning I woke up, and I'm going through the garbage counting the crackers, and I felt such profound depression and uselessness. And here I am in Paris, I have a view of the Eiffel Tower. I'm crawling around my bedroom hating myself. And for two weeks, I was overseas with my best friends, and I, I couldn't have a good time, and I didn't understand what it was. Well, I was restless, irritable, and discontent. I mean, I couldn't, 
there was nothing that was going to fix it. Nothing. I remember one day I took a walk in the snow to the Luxembourg Gardens, and it was so beautiful. And that one time I felt what I now know as a sense of awe, a sense of the divine, a sense of my higher power. Um, but I didn't know what it what it was then. And, and I was praying then. I didn't know what I was praying to. And I was taking the third step. I would get on my knees and go, God, just help me. And for a second, half second, I would feel okay. And but I didn't know what to do. So I came back here and I looked at my dog and my dog had all these really funky, huge red marks on her stomach. And I was like, what is that? So I took her to the emergency room down here and they said, oh, wow, this is a really big case. I said, well, what's that mean? They said, well, it's really serious. And I'm like, like, what? They're like, like blood cancer. I'm like, oh my God. All right, so drinking water, hold on. So I was like, oh God. And I had just come off this binge in Paris. I had broken my abstinence. The dog's dying. And I called my sponsor. And I said, you know, my, I'm sorry I haven't called you. And, and I'm like, an, I'm a wreck. I'm in my bathroom. I'm shaking. My dog's dying. She said, well, you know, I've moved on. I didn't hear from you for three weeks. That was the best thing she could have done. It was the best thing that ever, ever. Now, I hated her at the time. But it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I became desperate. Like, I was willing to do anything. So I called a friend of mine who's an AA, and I said, Bob, you know, I, I'm, my, sponsor spire, my sponsor fired me, and my dog's dying, and I, you know, have all this stuff going on, and I, I don't know what to do. And he said, I'm, I'll find you somebody. In 15 minutes, he called me back, and I, he said, I know somebody who knows somebody, and you go call her. And I thought, okay, great. And I thought, oh, God, I hope it's not that girl. I think it is, but okay, I'll call her. <laughs> and... Um, so I called her, and horrifyingly, she answered the phone. Now, um, I know now she never answers the phone then. It was Wednesday at 5.30, and she was on her way to a meeting, and she answered the phone, and she was like, okay, like, what do you do? I go, I, I eat, I'm obsessed with food, and I eat all the time. And, and she said, well, that's not my story. My story is something else, but, you know, why don't you meet me? Where do you sit? And it was the worst question she could have asked me. Like, where do you sit? I'm like, where do I sit? I sit where nobody can see me. What do you mean, where do I sit? I sit in the back. I don't have a seat. Where do I sit? And so I was like, uh, I don't have, like, a regular seat. And she said, okay, meet me there and write about what surrender means to you and all the things you've done to control your eating. I'm like, okay. And I am terrified. I mean, I have... I have been on <laughs> hundreds of job interviews in my life, and I am so terrified. I'm shaking. And she sees me this Saturday, and she gives me a huge hug, and she's like, okay, that's great. It's really great. And, um, you know, we'll talk about your abstinence and just keep it simple. Wear it like a loose garment. And um, three days later, my dog died. And the night before, um, my dog died was my first abstinent day, and it was breakfast, lunch, dinner, and a snack. And as they were putting my dog to sleep, I sat there saying to her, thank you. Thank you for thank you for the love you've given me and thank you for, for what you've done. And I was able to be um, abstinent. And I've been abstinent ever since by the grace of God or higher power or divine mystery or whatever you'd like to call awe uh, one second at a time. And, you know, when I see the newcomers, I kind of worry because when I was new, like 11 and a half years, that was just too weird for me. I, I could really only get through a meal or a snack, or an hour, or a minute, and that's all I could do, and recently I got sober because it became increasingly about um, one year, two and a half months ago, and 
because it became increasingly clear it was going to be a problem and I couldn't leave it, li- live a spiritual life while I was drinking. And so I absolutely had to do that to be a member of, of, of this kind of fellowship in order to be honest. And um, so anyway, so how I work my program, what I do and what's changed. Um, what's changed is I don't enjoy hating people anymore. I used to hate it a lot. I just like love, I mean, oh my God. And I was entertaining, man. I was funny about it. And I don't really enjoy it anymore. Actually, my poor sponsor has been going through this week with me. I have these clients who are really hating on me right now. And it's not that much fun actually, but I have one, one and only one goal this week. Don't say anything I'm going to have to apologize for. I'm on the ninth step in another program. I am so tired of it. I'm like, please, just say nice things so you don't have to take it back. Um, because of this program, I was able to show up when my mom was dying, and I had a really tough relationship with my mother. I can tell you right now I fully love my mom, and, and a lot of what Leslie, my sponsor, said, show up. Just show up. Just show up. And so that's what I did. And every morning you guys, you know, um, called me. And um, I want to talk a lot about the other people in this program. I mean, when I was a newcomer, I was not like a cheerleader for OA. I wasn't like a let's all get together girl. That was not my deal. Like I said, I didn't like the shoes. So I just wasn't, it wasn't my thing. You know, and I read this fascinating article once, which was, how, I read the New York Times op-ed page, but it was probably an outside issue, but years ago, which is how when you're an addict, you relate to your addiction and not other people. So the addiction actually becomes the primary relationship. And I realized my primary relationship was with food, planning the food, thinking about the food, obsessing about the food, having sex with the food, making the food, everything about the food, so that when Leslie had said to me, three meals a day and life in between, it did not make any sense because there was no life in between. I now have life in between. I have, you know, a career. I used to think about my career. Why aren't I so-and-so? And I and I would get crazy. Why aren't I on a billboard? You know, why aren't I on that billboard? And one time I saw a billboard of Penn & Teller, and I was like, why aren't I Penn & Teller? Well, I don't like magic, for one thing. I mean, I, I, I was like crazy. It was, you know, compare and despair. You know, why aren't I this? I don't do that anymore. Do I have... You know, moments of why your earrings bigger than mine, if they're diamond, yes, I do. And then it's gone. You know, and once I spent, by the way, an hour thinking about that, and they were fake. So, you know, that let me, that let me know what I think. I don't, I, I am okay with the way I look. I am good with who my husband is. I am, I'm good with it. Um, I'm grateful to have what I have. Um, I work every morning to have a relationship with my higher power um, so that I remember no matter what I buy on the internet, it's not going to make me feel better. (laughs) And I try never to do my day without a spiritual start, and I have forgotten recently because of these interesting clients, and um, when I forget, I make bad choices. So I try to start even just with a little, you know, and I say to my sponsors, can you read 30 seconds of Just For Today? Yeah. Can you make a 10 sub, 10... Ten gratitude lists, yes. Can you do a one-minute meditation? That's all you have to do. I aspire at this point to 15, which I seldom make, but I aspire to it. I do quite a lot of reading and writing. That just works better for me. Um, And I try to find what makes me feel good, and what makes me feel good is, is being of maximum service to others. So even though this week I've been so depressed because I've been so hated by my clients who are not shy about telling me this, 
Um, you know, I can be of maximum service, and I want to just give a tiny, tiny example of what all of us in this room can do for each other, is that last night I was on my way to a meeting, and um, I saw a girl kind of looking around, I was like, oh, are you going? And I was on the phone. I was like, oh, are you going? And I'm kind of pointing. And she's like, yeah, yeah. And I said, okay, come with me and we'll go. And and um, and so, you know, I took her into the meeting. And she's like, oh, what happened to your foot? And she's like, oh, I broke my foot. I'm like, oh, well, then sit here because you'll have a space to put your foot. And I figure, you know, she's got way more time than I do. It turned out this person had six days in program. And I was in a foul mood. And that one tiny weeny thing I did that we're taught to do in here be of maximum service, try to love each other, try to look for the similarities. I was the differences girl. Try to look for the similarities. So now when I hear a speaker I hate, I go, all right, I am going to get one thing out of the speaker if it kills me. I'm going to get one thing. And I close my eyes and I try to open my heart and just get, and it's unbelievable what happens. You know, I, I almost always get some revelation. I don't know how, but it, but it comes. And so connection is what keeps me out of, um, I'm one of those morbid self-reflection girls. That's like my favorite thing. Oh, I got a morbid self-reflection. And um, so being of assistance to others, being assistance to people I don't like is very helpful for me. You know, so I have some sponsees who challenge me. Um, you know, and I'm not a particularly patient person, so it's really, really good for me to be patient. It's really good for me to listen to the same story that my father has told me now for 64 years, and and act like I've never heard it before. And he's 92 years old, and you know what? I'm lucky to have him, and I'm lucky to feel loved. And I didn't feel loved when I was a little kid by him, so I'm lucky to have that, and I'm lucky to have this program. So um, thank I can't say thank you for asking me to speak, because, in fact, I'm the speaker-getter. So. <laughs> Um, but but the, uh, uh, my other speaker getter, Deva, and I talked about asking the old secretaries to speak, and I'm an outgoing secretary, so uh, I want to thank Deva, and um, I want to thank you guys um, for the privilege of being fellows with you, and for calling me most when I need it, and for showing up most when I need it, and um, for giving me a sense of what the divine looks like in my life, so thanks. Go ahead, Rashad. What does your 10-step experience look like today? Um, okay, I did one this morning, and I tend to do... Okay, I'm sorry. What does my 10-step experience look like? I do a 10-step format. So I say, God, I have fears, and I go through all my fears. And I had a lot today. And then I say, God, I have resentments, and I go through all my resentments, and I get gnarly, too, you know. My thing is I call a lot of people stupid. I'm not quite sure why. I'm like four years old, like my grand. You're so stupid. You know, so I go through a lot of resentments. Then I go through what my assets are. And then I say, God, I am now ready, entirely ready for you to take away all these fears and resentments. Um, I pray only for your knowledge of your will for me and a desire to carry that out. And that's the 10-step format that I do. And then I recently did the 10th step in another program. And if you haven't read the 10th step recently, I would so recommend that you read it. It took me so long to do, not because I wasn't doing the work, but every sentence was like, oh, my God, this is so good. This is so good. And I kept reading it. So I, that's how I do it. So I kind of do it 
Rashad, probably when I'm having a bad day or a funky day or a resentful day, I do it a couple times a week. And sometimes a week I just do 10 things I'm grateful for. Yes, Ahuva. Has your relationship with your higher power changed in the last 11 years? The question is, has my relationship with my higher power changed in the last 11 years? And I would say yes, dramatically. Um, the biggest thing that for me that did it is the death of my mother because my mother went in for what looked like routine surgery and went into hospice. So I didn't know what to pray for. So I just prayed that whatever God's will would be, would be. And I just kept saying to myself, radical acceptance, radical acceptance. You know, if she's sick, she's sick. She had some dementia. I can't wish for her to have more dementia and come back. I don't want her to die, but I don't want her to live if she has dementia. I, it's not up to me when she dies, so I'm just going to hang out and wait. I'm just going to, and that, that faith, and I texted a friend of mine, I'll never forget what she said, whose husband died a really painful death, very young, of stomach cancer. And I said, I can't do this. And she texted me back immediately. You, you may not want to do it, but you can. So I would take the dog, I would walk down the street, I would walk the dog back, I would go to my Al-Anon meeting, I would get on my knees, I would call my fellows, I would call Leslie, I would do my morning meditation, and I would turn it over, and then while I was at an Al-Anon meeting sharing about her, my mother decided to die. So, and I was with one of my closest and oldest friends, so it was orchestrated divinely by whatever divine coincidence that I choose to think is a higher power. So my relationship with my higher power is, I think, much more trusting than it used to be. Like, I know right now I'm going through a very painful time, but I know it's the best thing for me. I know it. And I don't say that to be a goody-goody because, believe me, I'm not having fun. But it, it is. You know, you know, my sponsor always tells me that pain is the touchstone of change. And um, it was very painful, for example, for me to get sober. And my life is better than it ever, ever, ever has been, including my relationships with other people, with my family, with my siblings, with my husband, and with my career. So um, that's how it's changed, is, is further trust and further contact. Erin. Can you tell us about how you work or try to get rid of your defects of character that are tenacious or reoccurring? The question is, how do I work or try to get rid of my defects of character that are reoccurring? Um, I'm not sure I have a great answer for that. One is, once they're identified, I look for them. For example, I'm a know-it-all, and today I could see it. So I start to look for it. And and then the thing that I always forget, and I don't know why I forget this, it's probably psychological, is there's a step seven. So we identify in six, and then we ask our higher power to remove it. We don't remove it. We ask that they be removed. So for me, it's actually asking that this know-it-allism and this, you know, morbid self-reflection and this, you know, self-obsession be removed. So... I think once I identify them, it's kind of like when you buy a new car and everything seems like it's a Toyota. Once I identify it, I'm like, whoa, there's that know-it-all big shotism again. I just bought another tiara. You know, it's like that kind of thing. Um, And then I ask God to remove it, or I, I really pray, and I really am a big believer in getting on your knees. You know, I just did in the bathroom over here, and, you know, I said to a sponsor the other day, if you're cooking, you're having a hard time, get on your knees. I mean, I, I try to get on my knees when I'm in a job interview. I'll go, oh, you know, look like I left something under a chair. 
Hi, Colleen. Thank you so much. Um, what, what, one, or what is something that you feel like um, you have learned about yourself from your higher power? That I want to do. This. Okay. What is something that I've learned about myself from my higher power? And thank you for that question. I spent um, several decades thinking I was a really terrible person and fundamentally evil. And I've learned from my higher power that I'm not. So, and that's from this program. So that's a huge, huge, huge gift that I mean well. It may not work out. It may not be interpreted as I mean well. I generally speaking do my best. Um, that I want, generally speaking, the best for others. That's not exclusively true, but I generally do. And that I generally have good intentions. And that gives me a lot of comfort, even when other people don't like what I'm doing or things aren't going well. So thank you.